I have watched it become more of a territorial uh, mentality that is actually, and this is the part that breaks my heart, is it's basically just a set of conclusions. Right. And if you, even if you're evangelical, right, that's your family or that's your the, the way that you identify and you come to different conclusions, you're out. And the, it's the tricky thing is when something becomes a set of conclusions, then people aren't as interested in the journey that you went on, the process, the questions, the hermeneutical lens. It is, did you come to the same conclusions? You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Bo C. Sanders. Bo is a practical theologian pastoring an interactive church in Portland, Oregon, after leaving his evangelical heritage. Bo did his PhD work at Claremont School of Theology and is a professor, podcaster, and blogger who's inhabiting a new parished model of church for the 21st century. He's a postmodern critical race theorist who's passionate about innovating theological concepts and engaging new ideas to bring a constructive voice to the theopoetic conversation. Bo also happens to be a dear friend of mine. And in this episode, Bo and I discuss his recent public exit from evangelicalism and how he is adapting church for the 21st century. We talk about how critical theory has widened and transformed his own theological perspective, what this new approach means for those who are in spiritual migration, and how this constructive posture is creating new possibilities for communal religious life today. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Well, friends, I have my friend Bo Sanders with us today. Uh, one of my favorite conversation partners, critical theorists, uh, and also critical thinkers um, when it comes to religious life. And so stoked that you were able to come and have this conversation today, Bo. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the invite. I have um, been looking forward to chatting with you. You know, I haven't had a chance to really debrief this Um development with anybody. And so I'm really looking forward to this on a personal level. Me too. And uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, the debrief that Bo is talking about is he recently announced publicly that he has left evangelicalism altogether. And although I'm sure there have been parts of you who might have left it a long time ago, this very public facing announcement is what we are, uh, uh, referring to. And so before we jump into that, Bo, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you yeah. come from, what you're up to in the world so that we can get a little bit of a frame. Yeah. I So I grew up a Billy Graham style evangelical. My mom and dad were in ministry with the Free Methodist, and um, which will become important later. And uh, then when I was in high school, we moved up to Saskatchewan, Canada, and uh, switched over to a group called the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which I ended up when I got my own call to ministry, getting ordained with. And, um, and I was with them until 2008. I had uh, been pastoring in upstate New York and uh, helping start a new church up there and uh, started getting curious about some of the changes I saw going on in culture and specifically within uh, Christian religion. The one that um, got me the most was, you know, I had been trained at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. I was a, a an apologist, right? In the typical sense of the Ravi Zacharias, Josh McDowell 
model of explaining the faith in sort of a, a rationalistic way. But I noticed that um, something had changed in culture after 9-11, around 2005. I started really noticing that everyone younger than me was asking very different questions than everyone older than me. And I was in this weird sort of line. So I decided that, uh, you know, in an evangelical church, you don't have to have an, a master of divinity to be a pastor. And so I decided that I wanted to go get my master's and study some stuff and think about some stuff in a bigger way um, that um, I just felt like my bachelor of biblical studies from a small liberal arts Christian college wasn't really hadn't prepared me for and it wasn't anybody's fault it's just i think something had shifted in culture and i wasn't prepared for it i didn't know even how to think about it not only were the questions different no one seemed to be interested in my prepared answers anymore and so i moved from upstate new york and saratoga out to portland oregon to go to george fox seminary it's a great experience i ended up writing my master's thesis with randy woodley in contextual theology, which is an interesting stepping stone because from a missionary background, it basically was about how missionaries translated the gospel into their new context. And it really gave me an understanding of language and translatability that ended up becoming what you and I are going to talk about today, but just in like a seedling form. Yeah. But then I wanted to, I decided I wanted to be a professor. So I moved on to Claremont to continue my education. And then my dream came true. And I actually got to come back to Portland last year and be a professor at the seminary that I had gotten my master's. And so I came back as a visiting professor of theology. And it was an amazing experience. There were a lot of things going on that year. It was an election year, if you remember, um, 2016 being a quite contentious. And yeah, I recall uh, that. <laughs> and I was off Facebook and all social media that year. So that was an interesting experiment for me to sort of secondhand experience everybody's angst and anxiety and agitation. So that was a really wild time. But the other thing is that the seminary was going through some changes and they changed their name to Portland Seminary. And that set off some very interesting conversations both about a concern by some more conservative evangelicals that the seminary was becoming liberalized and identifying with Portland, which is, you know, very liberal place. Yeah. But also some people who uh, were concerned about the opposite thing, which is distancing ourselves from sort of our evangelical heritage. So we dropped, we dropped George Fox, the Quaker thing from the name. We dropped evangelical and we moved into a, geographic or regional understanding and that was all happening at the same time that the curriculum was changing too and so I just got to see all of these massive shifts all happening at the same time and just realized that in the 10 years since I sort of really identified as in that evangelical tribe that not only had I migrated pretty far into this theopoetic, more open-ended understanding of the faith and expression of of that faith, but that evangelicalism had gone a little bit in the opposite direction and had become a little more entrenched, a little more concrete and wooden, a little more defensive and possessive and territorial, and the gap had gotten quite large. Yeah. 
So I still had some commitments. I, I used to teach at a seminary back east uh, in New York every year, and I still was uh, teaching a little bit out here. But as those things came to an end, I just realized that the energy that it takes to translate what I had been learning and seeing in faith communities, the energy that it took to translate that for people who were operating in a, in a sort of a different operating system was a, a, a huge expenditure of energy. And it, it had stopped bearing much fruit. Yeah. Because um, just by the nature of the changes that had happened, I really realized that it was taking more energy for me to bridge the gap and the people on the other side weren't that interested in what I was selling. Sure. So, I mean, this migration that you're naming in uh, the questions that the people you were ministering to were carrying and also this internal movement in yourself as your education moved you further and further away from evangelicalism. Um, I call this phenomenon the Craigslist. You know, it's it's this mass migration of people moving <laughs> this Western form of Christianity in in the form of evangelicalism and uh, are moving to a new place and you know, and yet many of them are carrying more questions than they are uh, answers. And so, uh, as you you know, you have announced this now publicly. Uh, we're we're you know calling this your sort of exit interview from evangelicalism. So I'm curious before we hit on all the points of critique and the points of difference uh, and where you're moving in your more constructive approach now, I wonder what the gift of evangelicalism was for you in that period of your life or in that point in your journey when you did identify as that. And then what sort of weaknesses did you start to see as you, as you began to migrate? Well, I have no idea this is going to be so fun. So the, yes, a generous reading of sort of evangelicalism's um, upside is that, you know, historically it has been about certain things. A lot of people like to quote Bebbington's research on um, specifically British evangelicalism, and it has some tie in with the American expression. But the thing I loved is that it truly does value scripture in a way, I mean, some might say it overvalues it, but you know what? it actually is a life-giving um, discipline and praxis to be engaged in scripture when you think that the divine is revealed in scripture or that God speaks even through the words of scripture. It creates a hunger and a desire in you and that you, um, you almost can't get enough. And so you do, whether it's morning devotions, you listen to it on tape, you go to Bible study in the evening, you make sure that you find a church that, that uh, nourishes you and feeds you the word. Like it really is, uh, it prioritizes um, that scripture in a way that's formative. So it not only forms you as a person in your character, but it informs your perspective on the world. It's a very powerful um, lens through which you view nearly everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really life giving. The other thing is that, you know, it's very crystal centric. And so actually some might say overly. So in that, like I have a whole uh, commentary series from the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance that shows how Jesus can be found in every verse of the Bible from the beginning of Genesis <laughs> to the end of revelation. You can find Jesus everywhere. Yeah. 
And it's a dangerous, I mean, sort of replacement theology for any of our Jewish friends who are listening. Yep. And so, but they are very Christocentric. And so it's why, like, you can be singing a song at an evangelical worship service about nearly anything, and the cross will suddenly show up. This, it's, not, it's not an Easter <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the cross is so central to every understanding of everything from marriage to finances to community service and everything yeah. in between. So, you know, things like that. Um, I it really for me was a, a tremendously valuable thing. I am not a pious person, so the external boundaries of sort of that do this and don't do this worked for me as a young person because I think without that external regulation, I really could have made a mess of my life in a pretty horrendous way. So there is a benefit to it uh, in, in many ways. Here's where it has taken a little bit of a turn and has become problematic. Um, I have seen it migrate in the last 20 years from being something that we might call a center set where it's focused on something particular and it, and it draws towards that to being much more of a bounded set that has a definite boundary and gatekeepers. Yeah. And I, I have watched it become more of a territorial um, uh, mentality that is actually, and this is the part that breaks my heart is it's basically just a set of conclusions. Right. And if you, even if you're evangelical, right, that's your family or that's your, the, the way that you identify and you come to different conclusions, you're out. And the, it's the tricky thing is when something becomes a set of conclusions, then people aren't as interested in the journey that you went on, the process, the questions, the hermeneutical lens. Did, did you come to the same conclusions? And so w whether it is the authority of scripture, uh, the nature of marriage, salvation and eternal life, it's a set of conclusions. So it actually starts to be for me uh, a, a version of the, the no good Scotsman argument. And that's the nature of that territorial. So if, you, if I said to you, no true New Yorker would live west of the Rockies. And you said, whoa, 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 I was born and raised in New York. I'm in New York through and through, but I now live in Oregon. And somebody says, then you're not a real New Yorker. <laughs> That's a version of the no good Scotsman. Right. That's what evangelicalism has become. It's a set of conclusions. And they would say no good evangelical would X, Y, and Z be right. for same-sex marriage. Do this, do that. And you say, whoa, 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 I am an evangelical through and through, born and bred. And I have come to a different conclusion. And they say, then you're not one of us. Mm -hmm. And that, that nature of the bounded set um, makes it very difficult to go through a conversational or a dialogical process where you say, now hold on a second. If we see this scripture through this different lens, and then we take it through this process and we end up in a slightly different point, and then they say, then you're out. It's very, it's very wooden and concretized mm -hmm. in a way that is, um, I find very, it's impenetrable uh, unless you are an insider. 
Yeah. So that's why I started really prayerfully considering turning over this work of translation to people who were more recently evangelical and who still were coming with some of the same uh, assumptions so that their conclusions weren't as far as I had migrated and they could still speak the language as like sort of a dual citizen. Whereas I've been gone long enough and I didn't know this, but I've been gone long enough that my accent gives me away. And so there's just little phrases that I don't use or I don't qualify things the same way. And so the unfortunate thing with being territorial is you can be guilty by association. Yeah. So I started to notice that I, I must to them, they didn't know what to call it, but that I must smell liberal or dangerous or progressive. They don't know the box. They don't know what to call me. But that they're that's the best of their other language. Yeah. And so they could smell me coming. They could sense that I was um, not a native anymore. I wasn't, I was foreign to this way of thinking. And that I actually was endangering the camp by my presence. Yeah. There's a nervousness that sets in um, because there's so much at stake. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, well, one of the things that you mentioned that you did over that process uh, was you worked very hard to translate for people and try to try to find little openings where people could encounter a new idea that wasn't so foreign that that it didn't lure them or invite them into a new place. And so you spent time, a lot of time blogging and speaking um, and podcasting. I would say obsessively. Yeah. I mean, for 10 years. You know, and I've published, I think, more than 600 blogs and 400 podcasts trying to, I mean, it was good internal work. It, it bore fruit within my own character and, and uh, practice and really helped me. I mean, when you're learning out loud, that's a valuable thing. Yeah. But there comes a point at which you realize that the work of the translator, it's actually, there's a very... Uh, specific register that a translator works on, which is a translator isn't doing a lot of innovation. Shouldn't be (laughs) if you're being faithful. And a translator also isn't interjecting their own novel concepts. Right. The translator is trying to faithfully take the concept from one language and, and, and then run it through a grid and then present it to the hearer in a way that they can receive and that's a very specific way to operate. It's, it, it's a specific muscle. It's a specific exercise. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And there just came a point at which I realized this is taking a lot of time, A, and B, it's not bearing that much fruit. And so I said, I think that there are those who can do this better than I can. Sure. But there's also something I can do which is this theopoetic thing that you and I are so fascinated with. Yeah. There's a thing that I can do, a song that I can sing. Yeah. That um, seems to be uh, a unique uh, or at least a, a rare yeah. um, song. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel this deep calling, uh, this music that plays within me. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't, 
take the resources. I couldn't put the time into my artistry to do this thing that was being called out of me. Right. Because so much of my time was translating ideas from one person to another person. I was never speaking with my own voice. Not as, not as much as the song was welling up inside of me. Right. So one of the things that you named in, uh, you know, some of those fissures in evangelicalism that started to crack, you know, is this idea that it moved to a sort of bounded set mentality, which, you know, and you even mentioned sort of the, the territory that they guard in that regard. Um, and this idea of territoriality, um, my friend David Moore, who was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, he speaks of that as a sort of uh, Anglo male disease of territoriality and the ways that it can be colonizing. And, oh. and so, um, so as you sensed this movement in evangelicalism to start, start to, instead of gardening and planting, be guardians and guarding this mm-hmm. bounded set, uh, I think part of what I hear in your heart of taking 10 years of translation is this idea that the catalyst of Jesus, uh, in your own maybe pastoral sensibility or your own care for your, your tribe that was, uh, he, he does the opposite of territory, you know, territoriality. He does the opposite of exclusion. You know, he's, he's, he's a model, I think in the Christian faith for, for what hospitality, what, you know, what, um, this sort of new innovative song that's coming up in you, uh, you know, offers us. And so what I hear in, in you saying that I was spending all this time translating is really that you're trying to commit to a deeper level of hospitality um, to try to welcome people on this migration or on this journey. And it's come to a point now where you realize that this song that's been welling up with you that might be a little bit more constructive or innovative is is really now what you want to spend your time singing. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as we make this shift um, in, in kind of talking about where you are now um, is really, I know that for you, critical theory was an influence in your life in deconstructing some of your evangelical sensibilities. And so I'm curious how, as you engage that in your graduate program, that changed your um, modality or your methodology, um, and then how that has helped you deconstruct and then also led you to a place where you're now wanting to offer something new to your religious community. Oh man, that's such a fun thing to, to talk about. So I'll tell you how it started and then I'll tell you the misstep that I had and, and how that helped me to uh, come back to where I am now. I had to circle around. So it started with really simple things like, you know, almost 15 years ago, I read um, What Would Jesus Deconstruct by Jack Caputo. Yeah, That's where I first saw the sentence that Jesus was a theopoetics of the kingdom, that he was the a theopoetics of God. Hmm. And, you know, as somebody who's really drawn to the theologic and, and, and hmm. the logic part of that, to hear the poetic nature of that if Jesus is the word of God, which is what scripture says, then in what way does God speak to the world and in history? And you start to see that it's not all the mechanized logic, the mathematics, right, of a constitution or a how-to manual. Yeah. Or, 
you start to see that God is a poet of the world, as one of our favorite authors would say. Um, and that as God speaks to and through creation, that as God speaks through the word of Christ, that as God speaks through the, the Sophia spirit, right, that is at work within the church, that it's far more lyrical and playful and ironic and uh, elaborate than simple math equations or constitutions or a rule book. And that there's something at work in the way God reveals God's self in the world that is musical. And, and so this is right. This is the, the dance of the poetic. And so I, it started in a really innocent place for me, which is just reading of the, what would Jesus deconstruct and coming head on to the difference between the theologic and the theopoetic. And it's one of those things that once in a simple idea like that gets in your brain, it's sort of like a magnet and it starts picking up scraps of other things that have just been laying around that are drawn to it. And so you start picking up things like, you know, I had heard about the apophatic, like the negativa. And especially in my, uh, I was in a mystics class with a Quaker uh, professor. And when she would talk about the apophatic, at the time, I didn't. I had no place to put that. I had no file for it. I didn't have a hanger, so I just kind of left it laying around. But it was later that I found that you know, it, all of a sudden, it stuck. There was something that that connected it, it in the in the magnetized language of the theopoetic. And then the more you sort of walk and explore, you start just bumping into all sorts of other ideas, some of which you've heard before but didn't do anything with. So they sort of just dis disappeared, but others that are brand new. And so, you know, uh, as somebody who used to be a part of a church that was really end times focused, I knew the book of Revelation well. Oh, yeah. And then I reading the book of Revelation, but like as a theopoetic, I was like, oh my gosh, this, wait, wait, this isn't about the end. This is about something much bigger than the end. I always love that phrase, you know, it's not about life and death, right? It's, it's much more important. Yeah. Something yeah. much bigger going on. So anyway, so I started stumbling on different things. Um, and then sometimes you would find something, just like maybe a, a sentence that normally would be a throwaway sentence, but it would stick. And uh, the theopoetic became for me a magnet that other things stuck to. So like Len Sweet, who I used to, you know, really looked to. I thought he was so creative in the way that he talked about interpreting the world in semiotics. So he would say something like that Jesus was a theography, right? So instead of a, a biography, a theography, yeah. so Jesus is a story of God. And then that sparks my imagination and I start thinking, right. And as somebody who's deeply about the church, right? In mm -hmm. ecclesiology, I thought, yeah, and the church is a Christography. We are the ongoing story of Christ in the world. And yeah. so, so it starts to snowball and you pick up different things. And then you circle around, you know, and you'll find somebody like a, a Derrida and his idea of difference. Mm -hmm. That playful French phrase where it's difference, right? But with a slight difference. And that, that ultimately the thing that you're addressing is deferred, perpetually deferred, but mm -hmm. also it's different. And so 
the book of Revelation for me became uh, a theopoetic of difference, hmm. where it is perpetually, it's a carrot, always out in front of us chasing hope, mm-hmm. but it's also always different than we expected. Yeah. And so in that playfulness. So those are the kind of things that really inspire me and I want to dig into and I want to play with and I want to write a song about and I want to dance around. Mm-hmm. But when your energy is going to translating that to people right. who have never heard of a single one of the things I've said over the last four minutes, right? you're always starting at square one and just with basic building blocks trying to introduce the idea. Mm-hmm. But there is so much um, to, out there to be engaged and explored and innovations uh, to be made that uh, I just felt the lure and the draw to move on into a new phase. Um, you know, this past year of my life, I just celebrated 25 years of marriage. That's a big number. Huge. Yeah. Congrats. I turned, yeah. Thanks. I turned 45. I transferred my ordination into a new denomination with the United Methodist. Like there were a number of landmark things. And I just came to a point where I said, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a young man anymore. No one talks about me as a young, right, thinker or young. Right. I'm sort of in the middle. And I really embrace this idea of moving into the second half of life. Yeah. And as I really prayerfully thought about what I wanted the second half of life to be, I just realized that um, it was time um, to say goodbye and to start um, putting more of my energy into the artistry that I felt uh, called to and to try and, and, and orchestrate and sing a song that might inspire someone to dance. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that's uh, alluring, you know, that, that invitation. So um, as we move in the conversation, you know, to, to asking you more about this new place that you are in and this new, um, more expressive, poetic uh, leadership style that you're um, embodying, uh, I wonder if you have thought through this question here. I want to know if you were able to name in your own journey some of the pillars that fell as you deconstructed. Um, I know that many people uh, who listen to the podcast and are listening to podcasts like this um, are post-evangelical or migrating in some way, shape, or form. So for you, as you think about those ideas or those doctrines or those uh, even ecclesial realities that you moved on from, in your own deconstruction process, what were some of those points that, that these ideas fell in their uh, fortitude and, and then you had to move to somewhere new? Yeah. Have you traced that map yet? I had a very um, distinct advantage over most people that I know who have gone through the deconstruction process or have migrated away from their faith of their younger self in that I had discovered the work of Paul Ricoeur and his concept he has many good concepts, but his concept of the surplus of meaning was one of the best things I ever, I I just feel so fortunate to have found it early in my journey. It's like a knapsack that uh, you can carry other concepts around in. And the, it was so advantageous and beautiful to me because it allowed me to recognize the plurality in things so that I wasn't doing that things that so many 
liberals or ex-evangelicals do, which is is then define themselves by what they don't believe and what they're not. Right. I I had the beauty of holding on to the thing as I used to understand it, and then saying, you know, as the register and saying, and then there's a second layer of understanding, and a, and there's a multiplicity within that, and a plurality within that. And that layering process that as I came to new understandings and new interpretations and new applications, I was able to uh, hold on to instead of just explain away or just disregard my previous experience and understanding. And so that idea of the surplus of meaning that says, you know, in any symbol as rich as a G.O.D. or the communion table or the cross, right, or any of this, the church. There is more going on than you could possibly explain or even address within one perspective. And that multiplicity of possibilities, that overflow of potentials, right? So I was able to enjoy the beauty of so many different perspectives without either explaining away or distancing myself in, the, in that negative way. Um, from and I just that that always seemed lifeless to me that liberal laryngitis of defining yourself by what you're not because you cannot make disciples based on what you don't believe right there's just not there's not it's not nourishing enough there's not enough going on in that mm-hmm. and so this surplus of meaning allowed me to really enter in and to see the multiplicity of all of the possibilities and to you know, trying to craft that differently. So this applies to literally everything. So from our understanding of God. Yep. To, so like, I, I don't feel the need to say, you know, uh, well, God's not father. Well, Jesus related to Abba in a way that said, in, in a way that John Cobb says, comprised his very character. Right. So I'm not looking to disregard that or explain that away, but to also say that um, God is more than any picture of a perfect parent that we can have. And so, you know, Elizabeth Johnson with the she who is talks about how our language functions. And so how important it is to integrate um, word pictures and imagery and allegory and analogy of saying uh, God is the grandmother of us all. We are all her children right? Mm-hmm. To, speak, to speak of the divine feminine, that it's both as accurate and inaccurate as people who pray to God the Father. Yep. That I don't feel the need to take that away from them, but to add to that the complexity of the layers. And so I do it with everything. So with hell, instead of saying, I don't believe in hell, to say, I believe in four layers of hell, Right. <laughs> And all the okay, way from, Dante. All the way from the garbage pit outside Gehenna, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, Jerusalem, yeah. All the way to Dante, all the way to whatever we talk about today. And it's just been a beautiful, I'm, I feel so fortunate to have found the surplus of meaning early in my journey. It allowed me to carry along with me things that ultimately I would be able to repurpose at my new place. But that had I not had this, this knapsack, I would have disregarded long ago. Right. And what you're naming right now is 
a basically just could be said as a hermeneutical shift yep. in the and hermeneutical in the sense of not reading scripture necessarily, but the way that you interpret ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea of surplus is a different hermeneutical move than disregarding, you know, and yeah. uh, excommunicating. Um, and instead, what I'm hearing is that what critical theory offered you was an invitation to playfulness and to surplus and to uh, multiplicity and to um, diversity in that regard. Um, Not to get super nerdy. Yeah. Just yeah. for one second. Yeah. Most of the approaches that I had ever encountered before to the Christian faith, hermeneutics, apologetics, evangelism, whatever you want to talk about it, right? Would have been easily classified as structuralist. That if you understand the structure, then you can build right on top of that. And so it was a building block approach, if you want to call it that, a mechanized approach, formulaic, however you want to break that down. But it would be classified as structuralist. Mm -hmm. Like language is a great example that they would say, these letters represent these sounds. And then when you put these letters in blocks, they form words. And these words, when you put them together, form sentences. These sentences form paragraphs. These paragraphs form chapters. These chapters form a book. And these books form a library, a canon, right? Right. That's a structuralist approach to understanding nearly anything. Yeah. The beauty of the time that we live in is that the structuralist institutions are being slowly being abandoned or being recognized as ineffective. The infrastructure is crumbling, whether it's our denominations or our democracy, our economics, our theologies. We live in a time of massive change. Liquid, some people would call it fluid. But the permission to become post-structural is an enticing and I would say seductive call. Yeah. Because when you start to see the flaw, there's something attractive about explaining things in a structural way, a very mechanistic formulaic. And then once you get that set, then you can say, all right, hold on. If this is the structure, the nature of how this thing works, then how could we mess with it or twist it or play with it and order it right in a different way how could we subvert it and interrogate it could we use it for something else right and so that permission to go to make some people call it the linguistic turn but to go that post-structural route is the move from the theologic which is structuralist usually Mm -hmm. systematic theologies to more constructive approaches that are found in a in a post-structural way of saying there's there's something organic life-giving holistic um, emergent that is available to us once you move past the structural approach to explaining everything by its smallest component parts yeah and you know so putting this idea of Let's see. We've talked about deconstruction. We've talked about critical theory. We're now talking about post-structuralism, which structuralism could also be talked about as um, propositional thinking, rationality, yes. Yes. logic, all of these synonyms that, that we talk about. 
So when we apply this conversation about post-structuralism to the evangelical construct or the, we would say the evangelical structure, one of the things I've observed in my own migration out of that place is for me, I think that this playful hermeneutics that we're talking about of, of possibility and poetics and, um, and surplus, for me, I think that the card that is pulled that makes the house of cards fall is the authority of scripture. And you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Um, in, in the, in the, again, the structural functionality of the way that that works for evangelicals, because if you go playful with their, your, your understanding of hermeneutics and, and how you apply it to how you interpret the Bible, yeah. all of the other ideas that are built on the biblical authority of attestation of God and Jesus and the work of the cross and the things you've said, they all fall too. And then you have to sort of re-engage re them with that. Um, curious and, um, you know, uh, curious and sort of playful mind that you are talking about. So I wanted to name that just because I think people, you know, who are migrating these days get lost in the chaos of this deconstructive moment. And even if they're not versed in the academic language of it, they sense it in the, you know, you know this society of postmodernity that we live in. And um, on a societal level, they're sensing the unease, they're sensing the anxiety. And, and um, I think what I'm hearing in this invitation is that um, as that, you know, as that shift takes place, there's an invitation not to have to necessarily um, divorce yourself and walk away from the symbology of your, your sacred tradition, you know, but instead to see that movement as an invitation to, to play with it and to hold it in a wider embrace and to actually maybe hold it with open hands and let, and let a lot of it go um, and see what, um, what emerges, you know, like you said, in, in a Christian spirituality that could apply to this 21st century world. And so I just wanted to name that because for me, I think that that is one of the keys that, that once that card gets pulled, the whole thing just comes into this, you know, that, that deconstructive moment now affects or infects all of the, the Christian claims. And so, I, I mean, I don't know if you have any comment on that or if you've experienced that to be true for you or if you would name it otherwise, but I'd be curious. I want to say thank you for providing the space for, um, for me to unpack this with you. I really feel honored. You know how much I treasure our friendship, but also just that you and I have walked such similar roads to have um, a partner to sort out, you know, because when you're done a journey and you're in transition, you got to dump out all the stuff in your backpack and sort of rummage through it and say, is this coming with me? Do I leave this yeah. behind? Does this have value? Right? Like, um, and so I just want to thank you for the space because here's the thing I haven't been able to get to the thing I most want to say. Yeah. I haven't been able. And so we're finally at the thing that I most want to say. Bring it on. My biggest aha, my epiphany was that to use a musical analogy in the end, I don't, my primary concern is not getting people to understand a theory of music. 
or to understand the different registers of melody and harmony and bass and timbre and right that's hermeneutics my goal in the end isn't to teach people how to interpret music or have a theory my heart's desire is to help people play the song that is in their heart and to dance the perichoretic dance of the divine to move in this space with god's presence and in other people in a way that makes the world a more beautiful place in the end my life won't have been about teaching people about music mm -hmm. but to have sung a song that brought beauty into the world mm. and invited people to dance into a bigger story. Mm. So I actually don't care if people understand words like hermeneutics and right. Even yeah, let's cross. I'm going to cross myself. Theopoetics. Sure. Um, that's all great. Right. And I love theory. Yeah. But the poiesis right of, of a life lived in connection to others and the divine in harmony with the world, right? That's the music of creation. And yeah. it, it calls to us from beyond, right? So this is one of Ricoeur's things is that we long to be called beyond the desert of criticism. Yep. And so a lot of people die in the desert of criticism. They don't ever make it because it's a very dry place. Right. And by that, you mean the desert of deconstruction, the desert yes. of all the critiques that could be tossed at a certain idea, the endless number of critiques. Sorry, I just want to keep yeah, yeah, yeah. going. But, but no, yeah. no, now, now I need help. I need a translator. So, <laughs> um, and so I just, the thing I most want, to, the reason it was so important for me to clear my desk and to get some new material on the desk and, you know, to get some different tools supplemented in and to rummage through the basement to see if anything could be repurposed there and to 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 put out for free the stuff i was no longer going to use yeah and to, you know, literally, and, to literally ask, and metaphorically yeah and then to ask if anybody had anything that i could borrow the reason that process over the last year has been so important is that in the end hermeneutics or theopoetics or critical theory are tools that help me to craft the thing that I have in my heart and mind, but can't make real in the world without that medium. Yeah. And so every, if you, once you understand that everything, whether it's words or concepts or behaviors or community or practices are mediated, then you start really getting fascinated with the medium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the medium is important because it's in being able to play an instrument in, in, a, in, a, in a way that allows you to express the, the notes and allows people to participate, to hear, to receive that invitation. It's evocative. Right. If you don't have that craft. So it's just a tool. All these things are just tools because ultimately – you know what would be amazing is if hundreds or even thousands of people began to sing the song of their heart and then other people heard that song 
and they came and they danced into the perichoretic divine mm-hmm. and no one knew what hermeneutics was. Yeah. No one knew what difference was. Yeah. Right. They're just tools that help bring out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, as you're, as you're um, naming this wonderful and profound metaphor, you know, of, of musicality, of performing, you know, performativity of, of this, and not in a performance-based system, but in the sense of playing, um, being a player in an orchestra. Yeah. Or uh, I can't help but think about, you know, what role our religious language and our religious ideas and our doctrines play in that system that you're now inviting. Um, and I'm curious, like as you're talking about, it, I'm thinking, well, it sounds like, you know, you, you take the ten central convictions of Christianity, you know, um. You talk about God, you talk about Jesus, you talk about whatever. And, and you say, those are now not, um, not propositions to be deconstructed, but those become instruments um, or they become, you know, uh, some maybe some sheet music, you know, for you to, to learn as you're, you're singing your own song. Um, yeah. so how would you relate like the central ideas of, I mean, you're still a Christian minister, you know, like how would you relate the central ideas of Christianity to this, this new sort of musical moment of, of uh, expressing the faith today? So really it was um, sort of the final straw for me was when I discovered this concept of constructive theology that has started in the last say 20 or 30 years that has embedded in it a critique of systematic theology, which is very industrial mechanized Mm -hmm. and it's much more organic. And so it gives us permission to say, you know, your concept of God might be much bigger than your understanding of pneumatology, the moving of the spirit. Not all gears have to be the same size and they don't all have to be uh, calibrated to interact precisely. Some things are imprecise. And so this metaphor of the the music, the musicality is, you know, there are times where uh, the bass line is going to take the lead, right? And provide the tempo and the pace and and set the tone. There are times where different instruments are going to solo. There are times where voices and the melody or even the lyrics, right, are going to become important. So in that analogy of the, the different musical registers, You know, there are times where your understanding of God or the divine or let's say salvation, we're coming up on Easter, where your atonement theology, like that's really important. It's a part of the song where you say, they broke up. Like the words actually matter, right? You're listening to a song, you go, I didn't know this was a breakup song, right? It's so peppy and I I didn't know it. So sometimes words really matter. But there are so many other aspects to a song that sometimes the words are distracting, but sometimes the words are just a vehicle to evoke something in you, a mm-hmm. feeling of happiness or of dance, and they're not really that important, right? They're just performing a function. So I think our doctrines matter sometimes more than others, mm-hmm. but rarely are they primary Hmm. because the music is about so much more than the lyrics Mm -hmm. 
And the song that we play with our life is about more than just right the the music the the lyrics that are on the sheet. So I know it's a not a great yeah. analogy, but it gets us started in a direction that says we're not looking to move away from some of the really great understandings that we have, but just understand that you believing something cognitively or making a mental assent to something, that's not the point of faith. Yeah. Believing the right thing or, or writing the perfect doctrinal statement, that's not the point. The point is the way that the practice of faith, that we live our life together in community, how that expresses itself in the world is the point. Yeah, And it glorifies glorifies God. And it broadcasts um, the good news that God loves the whole world in a way that people receive that. They hear that song and they receive that as good news. Then they can come as they are led to participate in that life of the divine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Beautifully put. So we don't, um, we don't need more music uh, theorists. Sure. Uh, but we do need more musicians. Right. Now somebody has to write the music. Right. Right. And, right? and people who know the theory. Yeah. But the orchestra needs to be much bigger than just the composer. That's right. Yeah. So we all have different parts to play. But in the end, the goal isn't to get people to uh, graduate from a class on musical theory. Well or said. The- or theology. At sure. Point. Well said. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of directions I feel like we could go right now. So um, I'll try to hone in on one. Um, so you clearly have thought through a lot of this, right? You have done the work, the theoretical work. And so what you're doing now is moving to a place where you are curating um, a religious community. And so you're applying these ideas in real time with a group of people who are longing to sing their song. So I'm curious, you know, part of the the theopoetic work of taking up, you know, as, as yourself, as a practical theologian, taking a practical approach to applying this in a community, what are you doing, A, and then what are you noticing as you do this work and how are you responding as you're, as you're moving and flowing with it as you go? Oh man, I, I love my community uh, so much. They have come with me in this sort of experiment. We're like a little bit of a laboratory where, um, you know, we've changed everything from the shape of our furniture, the, sh- the shape of the sanctuary, to the way we spend our morning together, to the themes that we focus on, who gets to talk, for how long, uh, how the music punctuates the gathering. We've, I mean, we've changed l- nearly everything. But we haven't simply uh, thrown everything out. So for instance, we've brought elements of a uh, Methodist form of worship, the liturgy with us. And so we still have a call to worship and we still have prayers of the people and um, passing of the peace and all of that stuff, take up an offering, but we do it in a way that is integrated into the whole expression. It's not rote. It's not just endless parroting and repetition. It's 
almost like sampling. If you think about using a, you know, with modern music, the ability to sample uh, other songs and, and bring them in, uh, whether it's the bass line or a hook. And um, so we almost sample from the tradition in order to uh, make a song that is unique to us and expresses what's going on with us so it's authentic to us yeah so it's a it's a it's a permission and we do that as and for me this is an actual ecclesiology i used to call it a church 2.0 i now call it interactive church um but it is a it is a, a way to do and be the church for the 21st century and i love it because conversational community or interactive church it requires that you have people of different generations. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to have those different perspectives. You have to have lifelong Christians and non-Christians, gay and straight, male, female, black and white. You have to have people who have kids, people who have never been married, divorced, widowed. You need people who are highly educated. You need people who aren't uh, maybe that interested in education. You have to have people who make a good living people who are struggling paycheck to paycheck because it's in the interacting of those different elements that the music is made. Otherwise you have a monotone expression. Right. And so it's in the diversity that the beauty comes, the texture is provided. It's messy. There is no doubt about it, but welcome to life. I mean, I have no, I have no interest in Sunday morning church being a little vacation for people from the chaos and the change of life where they get to come and consume a religious experience of nostalgia that makes them, you know, feel, and then they get a little break from their week before going back out. Like if that's what this endeavor is, I, I, I have better things to do. I could make way more money doing something else. But for me, this is a, a calling, a sacred calling that uh, for me to help facilitate uh, the gifts and graces that people bring to the table so that they contribute to what ends up being our expression with their experiences, their perspectives, their questions, their insights. And in all of that, the multiplicity, the diversity, the plurality, the surplus of meaning to bring this full circle Mm -hmm. uh, is illuminated in a way that brings a fuller expression and a more beautiful uh, texture um, to the, the, the way that we are in the world. Yeah. And so I feel honored to have found um, this little congregation who was willing to take a risk and to change things around and to change things up and to try something new. And not everything we do works. Um, yeah. Some things just, you know, they're ex- like all experiments. We, we try and learn from those things that don't work. But most of the time, because of the richness of what people bring in their contribution, we all leave the morning better than we came in. Hmm. And then we're doing this week after week. And in that practice, I'll even call it praxis, which is thoughtful practice. Mm-hmm. We are being formed. And so um, 
you know, there's a whole bunch of fun words that we get to throw around. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I wanted to note from what you just shared was that in that embrace of the plurality of your yeah. community, like you said, all the, you know, uh, the differences there that are welcome in the conversation, um, you use the word that there's a formational element, but I think what you're, what you're doing there is creating, um, creating an environment of possibility, of possibility for a deeper transformation in and through contact with another, you know, and if you have that sort of monolithic, like you said, the, the, the whole community is comprised of one demographic of person. Um, what is spiritual formation? What is, what is transformation in that, in that setting? You know, like I think the call to the margins within Christianity, the call to um, embodiment and to this, this, this theopoetic movement toward um, a, a new way of embodying the faith, the environment that you're creating is actually providing space for this possibility for a deeper transformation than would be possible in church 1.0 or non or consumer church or yeah. whatever you would name that performance so, church yeah. performance church yeah it's uh, so i just wanted to name that i think that's that's really um beautiful work and it's it's meaningful and it's crucial work at this time you have just given me a gift by the way so i am a trinitarian through and through as a, a hyper theist we joke i am a trinitarian yep, yep. and uh i always note when i find a third because i don't like the either or the binary the dual. Yeah. I always note when I find a third and I always talk about how this way of being and doing church, it forms us and informs us, but you just gave me transform. Yeah. Now I have a tr my, my triplet. Yeah. And yeah. now, now I can put them in that perichoretic yeah. formulation and let them dance with each other. So you've just given me a gift. Thank you. Well, inadvertently, you're welcome. Yeah. You have opened up a new possibility for me. Hey, that sounds like something I'd be into. So, um, all right. So, you know, we're landing in this place here of um, tracing your migration from evangelicalism into this new um, faith that you have written about and that you're now, you know, teaching about and inviting in people that you call a new faith that works in the 21st century postmodern context. Mm -hmm. So I have two, two questions for you, uh, and then one final, one final question, if that'd be okay. Um, mm -hmm. First one is, um, Bo, you used to be evangelical. What are you now? And the second part of that question is, what is this new faith that works in the 21st century postmodern context? Wow. You could if you couldn't email me those ahead of time, so I could <laughs> put you on the spot. <laughs> so I could sound prepared. Right. No, no, that's that's amazing. So the I used to be evangelical. Um, what am I now? You know, the reason that is such a a funny question is because um, when you are comfortable with labels, right? If that's something that you've been conditioned mm -hmm. uh, to look for and groomed and socialized to think in labels. When you start to say like, well, I don't like labels, right? Like that, that's always the, the joke, uh, sort of the meme. But the labels do get trickier because 
you don't want to just be post something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say enough, but you don't also just want to be anti or counter something because that's not fruitful and nourishing. So you do have to have something um, that you do say. Now, it can be an empty container in which you pour meaning into. Right. So I tried progressive for a while, but unfortunately that sort of got um, gobbled up in our current political environment. Yep. And now um, is not as helpful as a term that it used yep. to be. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I've been experimenting with this idea of, of the constructive borrowed from the constructive theology. I think right now as a resting point, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going with that. I'm, I have a constructive approach because it, it, it has elements in it built in of, of feminist concerns, mm-hmm. right? So many leading voices within constructive theology come from a feminist perspective. It has post-colonial critique and perspectives built mm-hmm. into it. And, um, and all of those, it also has that, that, post-structural hermeneutical camp that's doing the linguistic work of words. Mm -hmm. Um, So for right now, I think my resting place, but I know it's just a campground. Like I know I can't live here forever, but right now there's something attractive to me about that constructive approach only because of the people who created it and forged it. It's what they have brought to the table that entices me. And I know that ultimately, I don't know that that'll be the home that I live in. Sure. But right, but right now it is where I find myself. For now. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. So then what is this, this new faith that is working in the 21st century? The world that we live in is um, webbed. It is interwebbed. It's connected but it's also very fluid. It's just the nature of the decentered, democratized, whatever you deconstructed, whatever words that you most resonate with. But the simple fact is it is interactive and it's collaborative. And so part of the issue is that the old top-down hierarchical, even patriarchal, um, institutions and mentalities remain so they're sort of they sort of hang around and some of them are still really powerful mm-hmm. and uh, quite fortified at this point but the emerging world is very much interactive and collaborative so the theological process that we are in is is dialogical it recognizes just that essentially there has to be diversity and that has to be a part of right in the early whatever endeavor that we're taking off and that that has to be either the goal, the destination, or it has to be built in early to the DNA or it's destined to fail. Yeah. Um, but it's interactive. And so the nature of the interactive is that it's like jazz. It's there's an impromptu nature to it, right? It's not pre-scripted all the time. There's an improvisation that happens. And so it is um, by nature a little bit unpredictable. Yeah. In the end, it's so much better though. When you, 
recruit, empower, facilitate, and release people to bring their insights and perspectives uh, to the and experiences to the table. You end up with so much more data and goodness and fruit. Uh, you're all more nourished uh, in the end. So the core conviction, though, however, just starts with this cannot be centralized and it can't be top down. Mm-hmm. It was like, shoot, that's the core conviction. Whatever else it is, it can't be those two things. Yeah. And then so everything else is, you know, saying, okay, with what we've inherited, how do we get from where we are? Because none of us start with a blank slate. None of us start from square one. None of us start, right, with a blank mm-hmm. check. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we begin from where we are to get to where our heart most wants to be? And then that's the adventure. Yeah. That's the improvisation. That's, yeah. You have to develop some skills in order to get there. I'm always telling people, you know, just because you grew up on a farm mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean you always have to be a farmer. Yeah. So you can develop different practices and mentalities and skills. Like you can move to the shore and become a sailor. And you can actually take the old wood that used to be the barn. You don't need to build bigger barns because we live in a pretty fluid time. And as the water rises, you might need to repurpose that wood into a ship. You may. Just because you were born on a farm doesn't mean you always have to be a farmer. That's Yeah, I hear that. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Uh, so my last question for you, uh, since this is your exit interview from evangelicalism <laughs> is what are your last words? Uh, and I know you've left again, this digital trail, uh, where you've said a lot of words, but I'm curious as, as you're now, you know, walking in this new place, or new way, perhaps. Um, do you have any last words that you would give to the evangelical community? Um, words of encouragement, words of prophecy, uh, or however you would frame that with your voice. I wish that my friends and relatives and compadres. I wish they could hear me say, you don't need to be afraid. Fear not, in the words of Christ. Fear not. God knows what she's doing. Right? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. The the dance continues. Mm -hmm. Don't need to be afraid. The Mm -hmm. music changes. The dance continues. Right? I, I wish they could hear me say that Hmm. that she who is watches over her children Hmm. Hmm. and we all belong to god that is that is a song that gives my heart life Mm -hmm. and uh i wish i wish that my friends could hear it Hmm. unfortunately we get bogged down in the details of that yeah yeah we do sometimes well gendered pronouns and such 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll just leave that as a hanging last word um, for this, this episode. And um, before we close out, how, how can we keep up with you um, and follow your work in the world and your writing and your podcasting and all that good stuff? I have a new podcast with Randy Woodley, who I mentioned earlier. And so it's called Piecing, P-E-A-C, Piecing It All Together. And so if people can look that up, it's on Stitcher and iTunes. Um, we just put out episode 35. So we're slowly building up our conversation. We'd love more conversation partners. Uh, I'm at Vermont Hills. Uh, and that has a podcast as well. And I put out, I, I do some fun Sunday school classes called Brainstorming. They're pretty fun. They're they're sort of like um, entry level uh, seminary classes. They're, we're just having a good time with it. There's also I put out my little my little ten minute homilies, my little sermons there. Um, so if people want to listen to that, I'm still on WordPress. I'm old school, so bosanders.wordpress.com, and I throw up blogs once a week, a couple times a week. Not as much as I used to. Yeah. But, um, there are more coming because. I took, you know, a little bit of a break once I knew that this chapter was coming to an end and uh, in preparation for uh, this new thing I wanted to do. So I took a little bit of a break. I haven't been putting out stuff at the same rate. And uh, I also have been practicing just playing my instrument. And so I've been doing a lot of, of work behind the scenes to make sure that I can get my instrument to sing the note that I'm hoping, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of practice um, that I've been doing behind the scenes, and I'm hoping that when I come out um, with some new material, that that I'll um, people will be in dialogue with that and will help me refine it. Yeah. So, as I find a broader audience, yeah. Um, that 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 uh, it will be as fruitful as I as I hoped it would be. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful that it will be. Uh, and yeah, well, thank you for, um, you know, for your wisdom, for your thoughtfulness and for your, your heart that, you know, with your mind creates a lot of goodness and, um, beauty for those of us who are migrating and, and also just thank you for singing your song. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so encouraging. well, you know, we try to, to end our time together with a, <laughs> on a, Good note, you know. Well, so, so thanks again for taking the time, and we hope we, we we can have another conversation soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I've really been looking forward to this. No problem, Bo. Much peace, my friend. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thea Poetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform that you use, and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Bo's work over on one of his podcast streams, his blog, or if you're in Portland, you should check out his community. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast or tweet at me at at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsor's ARC at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. <laughs>